What is up, y'all? My name is Kristen. My name is Sarah. And welcome to the Red Rum and Red Wine Podcast. Happy 2023, everyone. We hope y'all enjoyed the new year and hopefully y'all are feeling a little apologetic because we have been a little behind with the holidays and seasonal depression and life and whatnot. Oh, we are apologetic. We are apologetic. You are. Thank you. A little drunk on White Claw and in need of forgiveness. Uh, so we are um, getting this episode out a little late, and then hopefully after this, we can go back to our regular scheduled programming and be on a roll. But yeah, you know, holidays, we're life, trying. shit gets in the way, but we're here and we're ready for a drunk quite- mystery in history. The first one of 2023. <gasps> first one of 2023. Look at that. It is... A good one to start off with, I'll say. I have a yeah. one that I have mentioned that I would talk about, so. Nice. I'm finally getting to it. Yeah. Mine is a weird, like, I guess you could call it a survival story, but it's just um, crazy, so. Oh, should we end on that one then? Because mine's not. I, capitalistic rants. Yeah. Everywhere. Okay, we should, yeah start with you <gasps> yeah because you, you know how it is for today i am going to be talking about ford so taking it back to the 1960s i'm talking about the ford pinto scandal Ooh. hopefully i said that right it's like pinto beans right yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah this one was oddly enough it was very funny how i re-remembered this case i was watching a a lecture on Harvard for free on YouTube, as one does. And they, the professor had mentioned this specific scandal and asked if anyone in the room had heard about it. And in a room full of Harvard students, I was the only one to raise my hand. So nice. <laughs> if you want to brag, or if you want to know something really interesting that happened in our history that involves the thing that we drive every day, let's get into it. So it is beginning around in the 1960s there was a slight panic i would say in the car manufacturing business or at least i would say the american side of it um for a while we are reaching an era now where foreign products are no longer seen as low quality or cheap um it very much used to be back in the day that american made was where it is at and that's where the cream of the crop is but what was interesting about the automotive industry in the 1960s, or I don't know exactly when it was released, it's like late 1960s, early 1970s, but it, you know, takes some time to be thought up. So some of this happens within the 60s. 
Uh, but we have our first subcompact vehicles that are being introduced into the market. Now, interestingly enough, German and Japanese manufacturers were the first to introduce, from what I read, I'm not a big auto girl, but they seem to be the first to introduce the subcompact vehicle into the market. Germans brought in the Volkswagens and Japanese brought in Toyota, which are still great cars to this day. So there was a lot of pressure for American manufacturers I mean, my grandma drove was like a Toyota. one of them. <laughs> Toyota, <laughs> my grandma, yeah. my grandma dro- drove a Toyota, and she drives Toyota. I'm a Honda girly myself, but Toyota's where it's at. Volkswagen, but not that I'm an auto girly either, really. To be honest, <laughs> I do know that like Volkswagen in particular. Or, or like German vehicles, because I know like the buggy parts are really expensive and it breaks down a lot. Yeah. So with all this new found pressure, 1968, Ford executives came out with the idea to create the Pinto. Now, this would be known within the company as Lee's car, and this would be coined after Ford's president during that time, Lee Icoca. Don't really care. And what made the vehicle obviously subcompact and what was one of the company goals that they had set, they had actually quoted it as the limit of 2000s, was that this vehicle would weigh under 2000 pounds and it would cost less than $2,000 to purchase. Huh? This is 1960s, 1970s money. Still. I know, could you imagine paying that much for a car? I would. For a brand new car, yeah. I want to go back in time, but I don't because it's not yeah. better. Especially for a woman. Very people love color and woman. No, thank you. Keen to get this model ready. There are obviously competitors that I believe already have cars out at the time. They set the release for the Ford Pinto to be in 1971. Uh, this was kind of different than other vehicles that they have released. The process at the time to make a vehicle was typically 43 months, so about three and a half years. When Ford decided to come out with the Pinto, they decided that they needed to make it within a certain amount of time. They weren't going to wait the normal length, so instead they cut it down to just under 25 months, which is like a little over two years. So in turn, when they made this cut, it meant that any design changes that are typically made before the vehicle is brought out to the production line, so those extra almost 20 months are typically made in design. So they will test a design, see if it needs changes. If it does, they'll bring it back to the drawing board until they get that perfect thing. And it's only until that design is perfect and they don't need to make any changes that it is then brought to the production line. So now, instead of it going back to the drawing board, it's on the production line. If a change needs to be made, it's going to be made then and there on the production line. Which, if you could imagine, means probably that there aren't going to be many changes made because, like, you would have to make that change within the first vehicle. Otherwise, you're, you're screwed. Now, I did not miss the ironic timing of this Pinto being made because during... pretty much the same exact time that this is all going on, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration was established. Mm -hmm. 
Now, this all was done by the Highway Safe Act in 1970, and this whole administration, which I'm going to call the NHTSA, was made in order to reduce the number of deaths, injuries, and economic losses that resulted in motor vehicle crashes. It's basically a our government administration that is in charge of the regulations that are made to keep the roads and the vehicles safe, or at least the ones that pe- like people use on a daily basis, the government roads, safe as possible. One of the things that was done within NH... TSA was that it set a standard in place that would enforce all new auto vehicles that are made after the year 1972 to be able to withstand a rear end uh, a rear end impact of 20 miles per hour without losing any fuel upon impact. By 1973, they would then bump up that miles per hour to 30 miles per hour. And I'm so sorry, my European girlies, I did not convert that. Maybe I should. Hold on. Okay. Hopefully I looked this up right. I believe 32 to 48 kilometers per hour. And Ford knew this. And though Ford knew this, when Ford engineers tested all of these Pintos, all of them failed the test. Mm. They knowingly failed the test. Uh, In 1970, when they crash tested Pintos, all of the vehicles suffered from some type of ruptured gas tank. I believe at 20 miles per hour, the tank was said to at least like separate from the car. Uh, 30 miles per hour, it's leaking, having dangerous leaks within. And then I read in one article or one report that if the vehicle were to be hit at 40 miles per hour, it would be hit at such velocity that the doors would automatically jam. Fuck. The doors would automatically jam. And I don't know the speed limits that were established during the 1960s, 1970s. I'm going to say 1970s because that's really what we're in. But um, according to Google, during the 1970s is 55 miles per hour. So if you're driving on the highway or like an average lane, you are going to experience some type of accident, at least within 30 miles per hour, I would say is like a safe bet. Um, The only time that the vehicle, the Pinto, was able to pass any type of test that was up to the standards of NHTSA was when the vehicle was modified with either a rubber bladder on the gas tank, a piece of steel that was placed between the tank and its rear bumper, or a mere $1 piece of plastic that was placed between the front of the gas tank and other parts of the vehicle that would, you know, separate it from the collision. Though Ford engineers knew this, none of those modifications were ever met, nor did Ford engineers notify the executives, quote unquote, I guess, that uh, there was a problem. And when they were asked, you know, why did you not tell them that this was going to be a problem? An engineer from Ford would state, if someone went to the higher ups, quote, that person would have been fired. Safety wasn't a popular subject around Ford in those days. With Lee, it was taboo, end quote. And it was also a popular thing that Lee would be caught saying was that, quote, safety doesn't sell, end quote. Okay. So you can see the mindset, though it was very much, 
I'm not going to say that it was uh, turned onto the engineers because it wasn't. And we'll get into that much later, uh, a little later. It's very interesting when I do get into it. Um, but it was very much a point of like, oh, the engineers knew. But if they went to the higher ups anyways, like they wouldn't have cared. And it was almost specifically like they told them, if you find something wrong, like, just don't tell us. Oh, God. Please. Um, because it, it was a big thing. So I am not saying this as an empathetic, as being empathetic towards Ford. I'm saying this as you are looking at this from a business standpoint of being an executive at Ford. If they were to come and tell you that, oh, this car needs extra materials, it needs uh, more time in order to be made, it would throw the cost, the under 2000 limit off. It would throw the weight limit of being under 2,000 pounds off. And that was one of the main goals that Ford had at that time to make that subcompact vehicle and to make it under 2,000, assuming to be more competitive with the market and to be more affordable in that price range that other cars were being sold. And also it was mentioned in one of the articles that even adding as much as $25 to your production costs at that time would throw you entirely out of the market as a competitor. So as a business executive looking at this, you don't want to add any cost at all, especially if it's getting to the point where it's hitting production line. And that's again where that cut came in. They really shouldn't have been trying to make this cut to push it out because by making this cut, they're cutting a lot of safety corners. They're cutting a lot of design corners. And that's where a lot of the problems in turn like lay is with them not having enough time to fix with what would have been so easily fixed if they had just been given themselves enough time. Right. Like you, like in one of the things I read it, literally a dollar piece of plastic would have done something, which just, just wait, I'll, I'll, I'll save that little bullet point. So with the deadline to be met with them not wanting to spend extra money with them, you know, we're still greedy during this time, even though 1960s aren't dealing with the volume of money that we're dealing now, they still wanted to make a lot. So they spent the next six years making this vehicle, knowing that this gas tank wasn't safe and would rupture if it was hit at 30 miles per hour and that the doors would jam if it was hit at 40 miles per hour. And they were able to kind of successfully go around the NHTSA, I'm sorry if I'm saying it wrong, rules because there were there was a lot of lobbying that was done by Ford, by the company, by associates. They did a lot of lobbying, aka lying, in order to keep the vehicle out of eyes by people who would see like, oh, this is clearly a dangerous vehicle. They're breaking regulations by having it out on the production line, by having it out on the sales line. And, you know, they just, they were able to get away with it for six years. Mind you, this is being done while Ford owned a literal patent at the time for a much safer gas tank. As you can imagine, Ford became knowingly responsible for quite a large number of deaths uh, between the year of 1971 to 1978. Ford will tell you if you were to ask Ford today that the death toll is only set at 23. 
but critics that have looked into the scandal have put the number closer to 500. Some have even stated closer to 900 lives were lost because of this. Um, One thing that really upset me overall with this, a engineer would go on to later testify that if any of the changes that they recommended would have been made to the tank, 95% of those fatalities would not have happened. 95% of those five to 900 people would not have died if Ford would have just done their job. Mm. But it, sorry, not their job. I'll get into that later. Mm. Because of this, obviously these deaths, there were a lot of lawsuits that took place during the years of 1971 to 1978. There was said to be around 50 that were brought into connection um, with Ford having, with Ford Pinto's involving uh, rear-ended accidents and the car ending up in flames. These 50-some-odd lawsuits, along with the NHTSA's increasingly aggressive standards that are coming into play, would kind of be the end of this deadly Pinto. Ford would have no other choice but to release a recall in 1978 after NHRNT. HSA did an investigation. That is such a fucking mouthful. I'm so sorry for that. When the recall occurred, about 1.6 million Pintos made from the year 1971 to 1976 were claimed. But if you can imagine, um, recall systems in the United States are not foolproof. I don't really like how we do it. If you're not watching certain stations during certain times, during certain days, you're really not going to be aware of it. I don't know. There just has to be a better tracking process or like a better alert system for that. Right. I feel. The Anyways. only reason why I found out about the Pine Soul recall that I qualified for was, I think, like an article on Facebook. Yeah. It, it, it's... I, I just really don't like how... Can you say that you're going to notify the public when you, that's not notifying. Saying to one news article that maybe 2% of the population reads, it, I don't know. It's fucking weird. I don't know. Especially back, I don't know. And I'm not going to, this isn't about that. doesn't matter. But the mm-hmm. recall system didn't fucking work. Even though they did get 1.6 million Pintos, there are still people out there that do not see the recall that are still driving these deadly vehicles. Um, And so a lot of these lawsuits after the fact kind of come from that. On August 10th of 1978, 18-year-old Judy Ulrich, Judy's 16-year-old sister Lynn, and their 18-year-old cousin Donna were traveling in their 1973 Ford Pinto when they were struck from behind by a van whilst driving in Elkhart, Indiana. Upon impact, the gas tank in the Pinto would immediately explode and engulf the car in flames. Unfortunately, none of the girls were able to make it out of the Pinto and Mm. would be burned to death as a result. This caused major strife within the community and it, I mean, someone needed to be held accountable for it. I don't know the miles per, the mile per hour at which they were struck, but it does seem something that like the doors probably got jammed the gas tank immediately ruptured and they had no chance of getting out it's really upsetting how this shit happens and Mm -hmm. later when you see the fucking reasoning behind it so 
in order to hold the company accountable, Ford Automotive would be charged with criminal homicide in the deaths of Judy, Lynn, and Donna. There was a 10-week trial in which jurors were said to deliberate for 25 hours, but unfortunately, the jury would stall at 11 to 1 in favor of Ford. And because of them basically ending up in a deadlock, the, it, the case ended up in an acquittal. Hmm. The jury foreman, a 62-year-old farmer named Arthur Selmer, would state that although some of the panel members did agree that Ford was being reckless when they made the vehicle, the Pinto vehicle, that they could not find any wrongdoing as Ford was able to better prove that they did everything that they could in an attempt to recall the car when they did so in the beginning of June of 1978 after the government investigation proved them, proved to them, hey, you're making a very dangerous vehicle and you're selling it to people. You need to stop doing this. And they're like, okay, well, we'll recall it. And then not a lot of people heard. So people are still driving this vehicle. They get into an accident. The jury's like, well, they did a recall. They're not guilty. So right. that <laughs> that's how it Damn. ended. There thankfully is one lawsuit that did get some sort of justice from the loss that was within Ford's greed. One of the more well-known lawsuits within history, I guess, is Grimshaw v. Ford Motor Company. Now, this occurred when Lily Gray had been merging onto a California freeway in her Ford Pinto in 1972 when her car suddenly stalled. When her car stalled, the car traveling behind her immediately rear-ended Lily, and they were going around 30 miles per hour. In one article, I saw about 28 miles per hour. Now, as soon as the car struck Lily's Pinto, the tank detached, spewing gasoline everywhere. And as soon as that happened, either with, like, the scraping of the metal, it really doesn't take that much, a spark would hit, and the car would be engulfed in flames. Lily and her 13-year-old passenger, Richard Grimshaw, would be quickly engulfed by the flames as others surrounding them desperately tried to save them. Now, thankfully, they were able to get them out of the Pinto alive. Lily would be rushed to an emergency hospital, but unfortunately from here, she would die just a few hours later. Mm. But somehow, miraculously, 13-year-old Richard managed to survive. Now though he was able to survive because of his burns richard would have to go through multiple surgeries in an attempt to graft himself a new ear and nose and this was done from the few parts of his skin that were left unscarred from the fire both grimshaw and gray's family would file a tort action lawsuit against ford which i know i'm sorry i probably triggered a law student if they are listening to this but tort law deals with damages from injury death loss um, to a person or property and there are three types of tort actions that you can file against someone intentional negligence or strict liability i don't know which one they filed against um them that's as far as my law google knowledge goes but thankfully it would finally be able to be settled in 1981 when a jury awarded $559,680 to the Grays while they awarded $2.5 million to the Grimshaws. 
But what I think really made this case such an example within the automotive industry is that Ford, on top of these compensation damages that they had to pay out to the families, Ford would also be charged with an astounding $125 million punitive damage charge for this whole entire scandal that they were involved in. Now, Ford did appeal this, which... Uh, thankfully, the judge didn't throw out, but the judge would lower the $125 million to $3.5 million, which oh, I wow. was really upset by. The judge said that this was still the largest value that had been seen at the time. And that was like another thing of like 125 had never been seen before. It was such a huge deal for Ford to be charged with this. And it was kind of an attempt to scare other automotive industries from doing this because as I am about to get into. And the thing that makes me so pissed off is that when you ask Ford, okay, well, so why did you do this? Their answer was very simple. A cost-benefit analysis would first be performed when when Ford first learned of their little tank explosion issue. When they did this analysis, it was estimated around the time that these safety improvements needed would range from like eight to five per vehicle. In a later fatalities report that ends up popping up, engineers estimated that the technical improvements needed all around within the car in order to prevent the gas tanks from leaking would be $11 per vehicle. Um, So it ranges from five to 11, but for the cost benefit analysis sakes, they use the $11 mark. So with 1.5 million trucks in circulation times that 11, it would cost Ford around $137.5 million in order to make the acquired adjustments needed to make the the vehicle safer for consumers to use. Now, if Ford was to do nothing and let people die and deal with these lawsuits and deal with the cost of burial and the compensation and all of this, Ford guesstimated that by allowing this car that easily ruptured and bursted into flames out into the market, it would cause around 180 deaths, around 180 more serious injuries, and around 2,100 burned cars. Obviously, their guesstimates are very low compared to actual numbers, But the morbid fact of the day that we learn is that in 1972, NHTSA actually put a dollar value, a numerical value, on someone's life. It was estimated that if someone lost their life in an auto accident, society would lose a total of $200,725. I did convert that. In today's value, it is about $1.4 million. And one of the photos that I sent you was actually the breakdown of how they got that $200,000. They did another breakdown estimating that it would cost them around $67,000 per person for Ford to deal with someone if they were seriously injured in a fire accident from this Pinto. And it would cost around $700 per vehicle to deal with that burned cost fee and to deal with all the lawsuits and burials and blah, blah, blah. So if we were to add all of that up together, it would cost Ford $49.5 million to just do nothing. 
So what Ford concluded from this cost-benefit analysis was that it was a better decision from a business standpoint to not make any changes to the vehicle, although they knew that it would kill people because it would save Ford $88 million. It was cheaper for them to not do anything. Right. (laughs) So they didn't do anything. And also, it was a thing that came out of this lawsuit. You're not allowed to... Uh, do a cost benefit analysis on someone's life that's actually, okay it, it yeah, and it, like so you're just you're literally including potential lives lost in your cost analysis by completely guessing how many people could die how many people could get injured and because like Ford, what are the statistics behind that because Ford did crash tests they found I believe it was only like 25 crashes so it's a very small number the statistics behind it aren't going to be very accurate but they found out of those 25 crash sites or those 25 crash tests only three of them didn't fail the 20 to 30 mile per hour crash test and those three vehicles all had modifications on them so in reality, 100% out of 100% in that 25 crash study without any modification were spewing gas and potentially starting a fire. And Ford knew that and they just didn't really care. So honestly, the cost-benefit analysis study was skewed. I don't really know how they got those numbers, but like it, w- it was skewed to begin with. I'm, what I'm assuming is that they took the crash statistics within that and said, oh, 180 people die. And then take that onto four. I literally have no idea, but it's the whole ethicality behind it is fucked. And there was some right. major law shit that got put into place of like, one, you can't put a value on someone's life. Although I think you can in certain lawsuits, <laughs> but it's like it was it became a big no, no. Like you can't do a cost benefit analysis in term of making a product safer. Like you you need to make the product safer in order for it to come out. But honestly, like, I don't even fucking trust that because there's still shit that's going on with our vehicles, like vehicles getting recalled, vehicles not being made properly. So, I mean, it's still an issue. I think this Ford Pinto scandal was just the first one to really come to light. And the reasoning behind why they did it was just so ridiculous. You did a cost-benefit analysis and you decided that it's better that you let these people die and you pay for their lawsuits or, like, their funerals rather than pay fucking money and have no one die. 95% of those people would have walked away with minor to no injury and instead they died. It's for something that you need, like at least in America, is seen as, like, an, an everyday necessity. Right. First-class problems, I know. But, like, it, it's something that is, First class. Like, <laughs> first world. First world, sorry. It's like, oh, I wish we were in first class right now. <laughs> Me too, baby. I wish, but no. First world problems. It's, like, you just... <sighs> well, also, we can have our freaking shitty public transportation services to thank for that we have to have cars because we need it either that or you take the bus and it's even it's shitty though in most places it takes forever costs yeah because the transit the transit we don't have a rail system the routes here are fucking shitty you know why because southwest lobbied 
to not uh, make improvements because the most money that they made was fucking from Texas, traveling from city to city. So they said, let's not make the trains, let's not make the buses any better. It's all fucking capitalism at the end of the day. It makes life so much worse than you think. Like, I get it. It's cool. And there are some really cool things about it. But when you let these greedy motherfuckers come in, like they will do whatever it takes to get their dollar. And I don't appreciate that. I don't appreciate the fact that we are knowing like the fact that we as a consumer have to be so educated in every fucking topic. Like I can't buy Gerber's because five years ago they had lead in their thing. Like (laughs) I can't buy it. I can't buy this shampoo because it was recalled. Like don't drink Dickie's sweet tea someone just saw in their tuna from that tuna package, like, don't eat this. It's unsafe. Like, I can't. I can't. The pigs that are getting fed in the feeding mills are getting fed trash with plastic in them. And that's how the microplastics are ending up in the meat and our food. Like, I could, you could go on about it. It's just they want to save money, save labor, save this, save that. They don't care. We have warehouse workers in heinous conditions here across the country go overseas it's even worse like it's just the things that we do to make a dollar it's uh it's pathetic because we're not gonna have a fucking planet to live on sooner or later no people care about money which we won't need money eventually because we'll be dead yeah Speaking of capitalism, like, comment, subscribe. <laughs> Five stars. It always helps the show out. It helps us make a dollar. Be sure to listen to those ads. We all gotta do it. We all gotta be fucking slums in the system. Little ants moving Who are around. you gonna be a slave to? It's basically, at the end of the day, we're all slaves to a corporation, a business, a person, a fucking ourselves are even sometimes, you know, like our kids, our hobbies, even we're always a slave to something, but make it worth it, you know? Yep. Try to be happy. Listen to the show. Get a laugh. (laughs) I don't know. I'm trying. Oh my God. I totally forgot that we have your story. (laughs) I know you're like, like, comment, subscribe. And I was like, wait yeah, bitch we got a after. whole nother segment left wow look at that <laughs> okay y'all mine is i want to say it's kind of a doozy just because i mean i just can't imagine this happening it's just wild but today i will be talking about the burger king dough as in john doe oh on august 31st 2004 Right before dawn, one summer morning, a Richmond Hill, Georgia Burger King employee went to the backside of the building where the dumpsters were located. She was like a cleaning employee, so I think she was there super early to do cleaning, obviously. Mm. So Mm. the woman was shocked and terrified to see a man lying on the ground in front of the dumpsters. She was shocked, one, because the man was naked She was terrified because he was covered in fire ants and seemed to be unresponsive. She thought he was dead. Yeah. I mean, yeah, if you're not reacting to a bunch of fire ants on you, yeah. The woman would scream and run inside the Burger King to call the police. 
The man did start to kind of come to as police and paramedics showed up, but he was just as confused as to why he was there as anybody else. When police... (laughs) When police were asking the man who he was, he could not tell them. He literally couldn't remember his name or anything about who he was. Oh, my God. The man, as I mentioned, was naked. He didn't have any ID on him or anything on his person that would be helpful in identifying him. So, assuming the man was homeless, the police, you know, they... They kind of figured he was homeless and that maybe he was on some sort of bender and was just out of it. So he went to St. Joseph's Hospital to get his injuries checked out, um, you know, because he was covered in fire ants. It's said that he had uh, a rash from that as well as like a sun rash. This man was admitted into the hospital under the name Burger King Doe. (laughs) BK Doe for short. John Doe, but a little spice. Right. (laughs) Other than the rash from the sun and the ant bites, as well as some cataracts that he had, the man was uninjured and seemingly healthy, you know, physically. Mm -hmm. He was a Caucasian man who looked like he was in his mid-50s. His blood tested negative for drugs and alcohol. And his vitals were normal, you know, considering. Hmm. So this wasn't some man on some bender who, like, couldn't remember who he was. That's kind of interesting. Right. His lab results that he had done were within normal limits. Again, kind of considering uh, the only signs of physical injury that BK Doe had were three small depressions on his skull and a few scars on his neck and arm. And these mm. depressions seem to be, like, from an earlier incident. Mm-hmm. The man had a long, unwashed beard and dirty fingernails, which suggested that he had been living a bit rough. So he could be homeless. Um, but again, we don't really know. Yeah. Psychologically, there were problems. Not only did this man not know who he was... But BK Doe refused to speak and eat at first when he was at the hospital. He would apparently just lie there or sit there while keeping his eyes shut. Anytime a doctor would touch his chest or attempt to, he would kind of freak out and flail his arms around. After several days at this hospital, BK Doe would finally eat some ice chips and start to speak to the nurses a little. So he told a nurse, I think they got to, you know, making small talk, and he told this nurse that he had been living in the woods for 17 years, and when the nurse was like, oh, shit, he's talking, I'm going to ask him his (laughs) name. So she was like, what's your name? And he was like, quote, they call me BK around here, end quote. And she was like, no, your real name. And apparently when she asked that, he got kind of confused and went silent. On his eighth day in this hospital, BK Doe became very agitated for some reason. He started cursing at the nurses, calling them demons and beasts. Mm. He would throw his fists and spit on those who tried to come near him. 
and he would ask to see a priest. When a priest came to him, I assume it was the hospital one that they have. Uh, When the priest came to him, BK Doe denounced the priest as an imposter and (laughs) refused services. (laughs) This this little, I guess... uh, Fiasco. uh, Fiasco or his behavior in this incident would... Caused doctors to diagnose BK Doe with catatonic schizophrenia. That's what I was going to... Yeah, because he had that notion of, like, not talking or eating and laying there with his eyes shut, but then also kind of acting out and, yeah, in those ways. And they would also prescribe him a powerful antipsychotic because of this. And then this is when they would transfer him to the psychological ward at another nearby hospital. Mm. When questioned again at this hospital about, you know, who he was, you know, what's his name? BK Doe would claim not to remember his name, where he lived, where he was from, or even why he was in Georgia. He said he felt like he was from Indianapolis, Indiana, but he wasn't sure. It was just like a feeling. Mm. He also said that he felt like he had three brothers, but he couldn't state their names or anything about them, about, you know, where they lived and such. BK Doe couldn't think of a single person he knew. The only thing his memory contained was a few images possibly from his past again he wasn't sure if they meant anything or if they were accurate to actually pertaining to his life Mm -hmm. there was one memory he had of the inside of an old movie theater another was of a long road going through a cornfield and then some streets he had memories of that he believed to be in denver colorado There was one thing that he remembered about himself to be seemingly true, which was his birth date. He remembered his birth date as being August 29th, 1948. So at this point in this new hospital and the psychological ward, BK Doe's new doctor was suspecting that this man was not suffering from catatonic schizophrenia but instead amnesia bk was aware and at this point more talkative than he was at the previous hospital um you know they asked him questions about current affairs and you know the state of the united states he was aware that president Bush was in office. Mm-hmm. He was like aware that we had just gone to Iraq a second time or something like that. Only his own past was unclear to him. It isn't uncommon for someone to fake this sort of amnesia, but BK's condition seemed to be genuine, um, especially to his doctors and nurses. They mm-hmm. most of them truly believed he had amnesia. When it comes to amnesia, there are several types, which, you know, I had to look up because I was like, amnesia, like, I know there are certain conditions and it varies. So the several types of amnesia concern what parts of life in general that you forget, whether it's your identity and your past or just things that have happened, Um, according to WebMD, LOL. 
The type of amnesia that I found that best describes this case is disassociative amnesia, which, quote, is caused by stress or trauma and presents as forgetting specific events or periods of time. In some cases, dissociative amnesia could even mean forgetting most of your identity and life history. In rare cases, you may forget all or most of your personal information and travel away from home or take up a new identity, end quote. So obviously, I'm not a doctor. I'm not saying this is for sure because in my research, it only said that BK Doe had amnesia. They never distinctly said what kind but this sounds pretty like it's hitting home so yeah just to put it into perspective in january 2005 four months after bk doe was found at the dumpsters behind burger king he was transferred to a health care center and long-term residence for the homeless and indigenous indigent populations mm-hmm. of um I forget what part of Georgia, but in, uh, like, the main part. <laughs> and in a, Still you in know, Georgia. Where everyone is. Right. This is where BK Doe would have a conversation with the head guy who ran this healthcare center that he was tired of everyone calling him BK. He said he felt like his name was Benjamin, but with two A's, unlike how it's usually spelled... Okay. He had no clue if this was really he na- his name, but it was just another gut feeling. But he had no clue what his last name could possibly be. Mm-hmm. So playing off of this BK pseudonym and the initials of BK, he chose Kyle for his last name. So Benjamin Kyle All would right. become sort of a favorite among the staff at this healthcare center. He would end up being there several years he was so more, yeah he definitely wasn't faking it. right and he he was high uh, more high functioning than a lot of the other residents there at the healthcare center so this is partly why he became a favorite to staff he would read his way through the small library there he was constantly volunteering for chores such as, you know, helping with stripping and making the beds, mopping floors, fetching food and random crap. Mm-hmm. So he was just kind of eager to, like, help out and be active. The staff at the care center would end up kind of adopting Benjamin onto their staff because he was more high-functioning. They felt like they could trust him. So he got his own set of keys he was there at their dispense, basically, like free labor. I'm not sure if they actually uh, paid him in any way, but... Doubt it. A few years after arriving at this care center, Benjamin would befriend a middle-aged nurse who was working the night shifts. Benjamin was usually up late at night, so the two would start talking and become quite close. And although this nurse specifically didn't believe Benjamin was suffering from amnesia 100%, she did feel bad for him because no matter what, regardless of what was going on with him, he was lost and kind of separated from any possible family. So this nurse decides to help Benjamin figure out who he really is. 
She figured it would take about six months max to find out this man's real name. You know, they'd reach out and see if anyone recognized him, but she was way off. It would take years and several different outlets to attempt to discover this man's identity. Damn. The police, FBI, missing persons experts, journalists, and other amateur detectives and professionals all tried to help figure out this man's identity, but they would end up nowhere. Find you a girl from TikTok. (laughs) (laughs) They they find stuff really quick. (laughs) Not only could they find no record of him, obviously with what little information they had, but no one seemed to recognize the photo of Benjamin Kyle that Mm. had been shown on TV and posted on the internet. Mm-hmm. In 2008, Benjamin would even appear on Dr. Phil that had over 4 million viewers, Damn. but still this appearance would not help. They received tips, of course, like, oh, he looks like this person, I know, blah, 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 but none of yeah. them led anywhere. With Benjamin living as Benjamin Kyle, any job he had or had been fortunate to find had to be under the table. Uh, You know, not knowing your identity means you don't know your social security number. You don't have the proper credentials and the government can't do something about that. He was told by the social security administration that he would not be able to receive a new social security number because technically he had had one before. But like, how would they know if he like, what if he was undocumented? This like they they're mm, they should like do something to help you. Right. It's literally he literally doesn't remember. I don't think. And he wasn't even because after he spent several years in the care center i think he ended up living with that nurse for a while while they were trying to figure out his identity and then he would kind of hop around and live with other people or homeless shelters but most homeless shelters wouldn't even allow him to stay there because not all but most require at least an id to stay there that's so fucked wait they have ids (laughs) A lot of them do. That would be the first thing. Oh, because I would need to buy alcohol. Yeah. Okay. I would keep it. So like I said, Benjamin would spend kind of those later years after the care center living with friends who are willing to help him. And because obviously, even if he could afford it, he couldn't like sign a lease or like whatever. That's honestly so fucked. You're really screwed if you have no one around you and you randomly get amnesia. Right. Who's working odd jobs that were paying under the table. Um, and this is until, and I'm leaving quite a bit out. I mean, there were several hoops he had to go through to um, eventually find his true identity. 11 years would go by. And finally, with Benjamin now in his 60s, a team of genetic genealogists led by cc moore of the dna detectives.com finally helped benjamin learn his identity i think you know somehow they heard of his case they reached out or someone connected him with them somehow they were able to help they used a method that was similar to a procedure developed for adopted people to 
uh, who wanted to find their true identity of their birth families. Mm-hmm. This genealogical team compared Benjamin Kyle's DNA to records and databases across the country in order to find clues and, you know, determine any kind of ancestral bloodline that was similar. And this was done by cross-checking and basically the process of elimination. A lot of fucking time passing. Right. Jesus Christ. Finally, his DNA was a cross-match to someone who seemed to have enough match in the DNA to be his brother. Oh. Who lived in Indiana. <gasps> as it soon as you out, said crops, uh, sorry, as soon as you said crops, I was like, that does sound very Indiana. Yeah. So it turns out what little memories Benjamin had of his past were correct. Damn. Besides a few things. The Burger King Doe, Benjamin Kyle, was actually named William Burgess Powell. Okay. He was born the second out of three sons. So he didn't have three brothers, but he was one of three sons. Mm -hmm. He was born on August 29th, 1948. Hey. In Lafayette, Indiana, an hour north of Indianapolis. So he had his birthday correct, which is incredible. Yeah. He knew he was from Indiana. Incredible. Another. Mm -hmm. Records also support claims by people and family that used to know him who said he randomly disappeared from Indiana back in the day to go live in Boulder, Colorado, where he worked several restaurant jobs in the 70s and early 80s. And there's another one. Yeah. So it's incredible how he had just a few little glimpses of memories that turned out to mean something. Yeah. So although dots had been connected about his life prior to amnesia, there were still some puzzle pieces missing. There was no record of him existing in society from 1983 to 2004 when he was found at Burger King. Because prior to 1983, 1983 was when he was living in Denver. He had like randomly left Indiana with a friend to go out there and live and just work. And then up until night and there are records of him working at like restaurants and stuff in Den- or in Boulder but starting at 1983 to 2004 there are no records of him I wonder so, if he really did go out and live out in right the woods. that was my next bullet point like maybe he really did live in the woods for 17 years because it's what kind is that? of seven ten yeah, it's like 21 years. To have no years. record, not even, I mean, I guess if you're working under the table for cash, maybe you can get away with it, but to have, like, no record of you, that's But you would even still do. be listed as an employee, possibly. I don't know. Maybe. Like, you find, um, like, you would find something. Some record. Like, the only way that you can go off the grid like that is if you literally go off the grid and go fucking live in some woods. Right? Like, I think even if he bought, like, a bus pass or, like, something, like, 
wild yeah. and random. The like, only way it would be is with cash, but it's like, how are you going to get the cash? I just, I don't know. I mean, there are ways definitely around seem it. like the but, type to not have a bank account. But. but to do it for that long, I feel like would be... I know. I mean, impressive, but a little impossible. If you're living among society and you're not under some other social security or alias or something, which he obviously wasn't. So, uh, well, maybe who knows? Benjamin Kyle, or I should say William Powell, was the first U.S. citizen whose whereabouts were known, but who, regardless, was listed on the FBI's kidnapped and missing persons database. This whole crazy ordeal had been featured, like I mentioned, on Dr. Phil, as well as on the National Geographic channel for some kind of special or something, along with all the other news and media outlets that his case was featured on. It gained quite a bit of attention Yet, it took this man 11 years to find out his true identity. He even said towards the end of those 11 years before he got the help of the genealogists that he would kind of be okay with not figuring out who he really was. Like, especially he said, like, if I won the lottery, I would say fuck it and just live life. But because I mean, at that point, you kind of just have to accept Otherwise, you would drive yourself mad. Right. And as those 11 years went on, and even after that, he would get a few more memories here and there, little glimpses, but never fully recovered. And so as he spent so much time not knowing who he was, he was like, well, do I even want to know? Like, what if something bad happened? Because, like, how did he end up with amnesia in the first place? Right. And that's something we still don't know is why like what kind of trauma happened if any and it's just it's insane still a mystery yeah somewhat solved Mm. william powell did move back to indiana at the end of 2015 i guess to be nearer to his brother um like i said some glimpses came but his memories from his past never fully recovered that's so sad he jokingly said that he intends to have his social security number tattooed on his backside <laughs> as funny. a future precaution. Hell yeah. You know what? He takes it with good strife. Yeah. He has a good attitude about it. Right. So hope he's doing well. I hope he's happy. I mean, um, it seems like he will be. Yeah. It seems like he's doing okay. So that was the case of the Burger King dough. That was a good one. That I had never heard about that. And <laughs> wow, it is crazy how people can just go off the grid like that. I know. It's um, 11 years. And it's wild. Mm. So I forgot to mention this because I didn't type it. And it's not super important. But after he was found with amnesia throughout his hospital stays, even when he was released and living with friends, he didn't drink or smoke. Although he would like to carry around a lighter, um, and he would—he was kind of a hoarder, like he'd collect random things. Yeah. But people who knew him as William Powell before he like left Indiana remembered him as an alcoholic and someone who definitely smoked cigarettes. Hmm. Hmm. That's probably the amnesia. Like, uh, remember that one fucking, sorry, that one movie with 
Channing Tatum and Rachel McAdams where they get into a car accident. It's based off a real life oh, couple. Yeah. She gets into the car she accident, gets falls amnesia. In love with them all over again. And you know what? He cheated on her and they got a divorce. Mm-hmm. Love is dead, baby. Like, comment, give us five stars. You know we love it. And don't trust your spouse. They're fucking japes. Okay. Sorry. Love is dead. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Anyway. It's all jokes. It's all jokes. Love isn't dead. My love for all of ones. you is so real. And it is so, it's so real and it's so there. No, it is. I wouldn't get up and sit down and record these stories if we didn't love y'all. So kiss, kiss, hug, hug. Be sure to tune in. Uh, we're going to get our shit together and next week will be a regular scheduled week. Knock on wood. <laughs> we're going to we're going to do it. Seasonal depression, my ass. The sun's coming out, you know, I'm going to go sit and lay. Next Is it tomorrow. called seasonal depression if it's every season? You know, it's just a different, <laughs> it's, it's just a different, different flavor of depression. <laughs> different flavor for every It's depression season. with like good food and holiday music and the cold, cold weather. The cold Ugh. puts me out. The cold puts me out. I don't Hell do good in, yeah. no. Because I'm cold naturally. Anyways. Same. Okay. Y'all want Oh yeah. podcast. Oh yeah. And the email too. Red rum and red wine podcast at gmail.com. Yeah. Send it. Say hi. We love it when you say hi. Bye. Bye.